You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening is from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 through 20. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a serious, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he, shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find employment enjoyment in all the toil in which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possession and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful that you have given us your word. Uh, this is perhaps a teaching and a word for us tonight that we would rather not deal with, but we are thankful that you have given it to us. So we pray now, Father, that you would mold us and make us into what you want us to be and how you want us to live and how you want our worship. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Man, it's good to see you all. There are many, many of you that I don't know. So I'd love to find out your name after the service, perhaps get to know you. Tonight is a good, a good evening to do that. Uh, after this service, we are going to take off right up Cole uh, to Roosevelt Park and hang out for a bit uh, and just have a picnic there at the park. So if you want to just grab some food on the way over or if you've brought some already, uh, just head on over there and we'll just hang out till the sun goes down. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. Well, a few years ago, Clint, one of our other pastors, I'm Nathan. Did I say that? I'm Nathan, one of our pastors here. And Clint, one of our other pastors, yeah, hey, hey. Uh, well, Clint told us that his kids had started a business, and their business was that for, for a mere $2 a month, uh, they would pull all of their neighbors' trash cans out to the street and pull them back to the house after they had been empty. Uh, so my kids totally wanted to rip off this idea, and so they are going to. Clint said that he should be owed a franchise fee, and I said, I don't think you understand how franchises work. Uh, but uh, my kids are up to 17 clients around our neighborhood, uh, and it's created a good opportunity not only for them to make some money, but 
for our conversations about generosity and saving, but with the ridiculously large tips that they receive. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Uh, uh, they have more money than a six and an eight and a nine-year-old could possibly know what to do with. Uh, and a couple of weeks ago, Owen, our oldest, uh, came into my bedroom with three large binders, uh, and he put them on the bed, and he said, remember when I was totally into baseball cards? I was like, yeah, like 12 months ago. Uh, and like binders and binders and binders, full, like thousands of them. Uh, and I said, yeah, uh, you want to know what's going to be funny? Like a year from now when you bring in boxes and binders of Pokemon cards uh, that, ne- that you're now really into. Uh, he said, no, that's surely not the case. He will always love Pokemon cards. But... For right now, he can't get enough of them. There are always, always more Super GX cards that have like more power and able to do more damage to other Pokemon cards to be, to be procured. I don't really understand the words that just came out of my mouth, by the way. But uh, the thing is, Owen doesn't feel this way about Pokemon cards because he's nine. He does, about specifically Pokemon cards, but this is not something that he's going to outgrow. He might move his money and his funds towards something else, but just like all of us when we were teenagers and then college students and then single or married and now even some of you grandparents, we are always, as humans, wanting more, to accumulate more. Whatever stage of life we humans are tempted to believe that the more money we have, the more possessions we acquire, the happier we'll be. Well, hopefully you saw the intro to the weekly email from Thursday that Clint wrote explaining what he didn't last Sunday, that he was going to skip over the second half of chapter 5 and the whole of chapter 6 because he was going to tie together the beginning of chapter 5 and chapter 7 with wisdom and foolishness, but that we'd come back to this section. Several of you called, both of us, and were like, did you just skip chapters 5 and 6? Like, was there something in there that you were afraid of? No, we weren't afraid of it. We're just going to try to put it all together this week. It's mostly all about money and greed. Rita only read from chapter 5, but we're going to look at three things this evening about money and greed from what you heard and then as well throughout the chapter 6. And the way that we're going to do this tonight is to work our way from the outside in. The beginning of our text and the end of our text from the end of chapter 6 are related. Then the next steps in are also related, leaving the middle paragraph as our highlighted conclusion. So we'll we'll see this tonight as number one, greed is sad. Number two, greed is bad. And then wait for it, contentment can be had. That's the dumbest thing I've ever done in preaching. But anyway, uh, greed is sad. Let's just read verses 8 and 9 of chapter 5 again. If you see in a province the, the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way a king committed to cultivated fields. Now there's a lot here, and I'm not going to try to make an apples-to-apples connection between uh, governments and systems in the centuries even before Christ to governments and systems today in America in 2018. That said, I think some of the observations that the preacher makes would still be true if he were walking around and observing today. He he just says, like, go outside and, and look around. Don't be surprised if you see the poor being exploited. Their abuse, they're being surrounded by injustice. Don't be surprised by that. In the preacher's context, he might be looking at day workers who are working the fields. 
And then he looks at those who are in charge of them. Don't be surprised, he says, by the sin of the overseer. Because that guy has a field owner that is above him who wants the exploitation so that he can make more money from his crops. And the buyer of the crops certainly doesn't care about the exploitation because it costs him less to buy the things from the fields. Now, verse 9 is notoriously difficult to translate it, but I've actually become convinced that our ESV translation that Rita and I have both now read from is perhaps taking the wrong route and almost making it sound like the king has like the best interest of the people in mind. I think verse 9 should probably read something more like, in the end, the only gain and profit from all of the hard work in the fields is for the king, which comes from the, 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 the soil from the worker's labor. He's the only one that gets any of the profit. Kings, government officials, they don't mind the exploitation because together everyone is making more money, is finding things to be cheaper. Everyone except for the field workers. And the same can be true today. If corporations, if governments are both made up of sinful individuals, why wouldn't we expect those in power to often make sinful decisions fueled by sinful motivations? It should absolutely not surprise us that these kinds of workers, hard workers, yet are being exploited by those who wield the power to use their work for their own personal profit. This is not a surprising thing. Now, the preacher is not telling us to now, you American in 2018, now you go out and vote for every progressive socialist candidate out there to make sure that we give power back to the people or something. The people can just as easily become another source and system of power and exploitation. His, his observations about this kind of exploitation are just exactly that, though. They're observations. We already know from chapter 4 that he thinks that oppression, that injustice is a great evil, but that they, even like the good things on earth, are ultimately here and gone too. The bad things and the good are hevel. They are vanity. They are vapor. Here and gone. But God, who is the judge, is not. God will judge in equity. He will judge in righteousness. He will repay evil with justice. But while all that's in play here, the preacher in chapter 5, he's just observing while it's wicked for those who are in power to exploit the weaker, it's just sad that they do that. It's sad for the workers, but it's even sad for those in power who are doing the exploitation. Verse 10, he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. And then like it, down at the bottom of chapter 6, beginning in verse 7, all the toil of man is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. One of the richest men in American history, John D. Rockefeller, was once asked how much money would be enough for him, to which he famously replied, just a little more. Always, 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 just a little more. We can shake our heads and say, dumb, stupid Rockefeller, right? But aren't we all just the same? Always getting and yet never satisfied. We hear about the money that our friends make, or we read about what 
should be expected for someone in my position at this kind of education and why am I not receiving the kind of money that I should? Why am I not getting the raise that I think I deserve? Man, if I could just get this much, then the problems that I have financially would go away and then I would be happy. My stress and anxiety would go away if I could just have that much more. Or we watch like 10 seconds of a TLC show and think, why can't I have a house like that? Why can't I have jo Joanna Gaines come and make my house like that? Instead, I'll just toil here in this boring, old, ugly house forever and never be happy. But the preacher says that we're just like Rockefeller. Just a little bit more, just a little bit more, Joanna Gaines could come and make over your entire house and then you'd still want it to look like somebody else's. One reason is, one reason for all that is because of the very strange verse 11. It says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And this is saying that when someone grows in wealth and stuff, then the leeches come. There's a reason why so many lottery winners want to remain anonymous. Long lost third cousins now become your best friends. And every charity or nonprofit in town now becomes your greatest supporter. And you, they want you to give to their ministry or their nonprofit. And then, of course, the IRS agent is there banging on the door, wanting his cut. The preacher says that with more stuff comes not happiness, but more stress. Comes more worry about getting more. Brings sleepless worry about losing what you may have. Just like that famous East Coast philosopher, the notorious B.I.G. once said, Mo money, mo problems, right? The more we get, the more problems it brings. But daily, daily, we are convinced that more money, more success, more, more, more will be the antidote to our unhappiness. If you want to watch one of the saddest things on the internet, go Google Tom Brady 60 Minutes. And what you will find is an interview of Tom Brady from 2005. He had just won his third Super Bowl. And he says this, he says, a lot of times I think I get very frustrated and introverted. And there's times where I'm not the person I, that I want to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think that there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? And the interviewer says, so what's the answer? He says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Now, I don't know what old Tommy Touchdown would say now 13 years later. He's 41 now. He's played in five more Super Bowls. He's won two more of those. But it's just really, really sad. He has everything that he can dream of. He is at the pinnacle of his career. No one greater. And yet he intuitively knows that money and fame and success is not what he was made for, and it's not satisfying him. And yet, what's the answer? I wish I knew, man. I wish I knew. It's this locked box that he cannot open. He cannot enjoy it. He doesn't know what to do. Now, undoubtedly, it's true that profound success and profound money and riches aren't the answer, but we must also say that profound lack isn't the answer either. 
It's true that while money doesn't buy happiness, neither does poverty. But the preacher is rightly saying that those who have just what they need are often more content than those who have more than they could dream for. And isn't that just true experientially? Like if you've ever traveled to a poorer culture or even to a third world country, I've often observed the folks there, at least the Christians who are there, uh, appear to be much more content than we Americans are. And while it's tricky to pin like hard data on social sciences, it seems that we Americans, at least from my own observation, are much more discontent than like anyone in the world. And yet we have perhaps more than anyone in the world. It's like having some Pokemon cards makes us discontent because we don't have all of the Pokemon cards. Or when we win one or two or three Super Bowls, now we become angry that we haven't won them all. And the preacher is just sitting up there on the porch in his rocking chair, perhaps with his lemonade or smoking a pipe, and he's just shaking his head. It's just, it's so sad watching this go by. It's just so sad, especially when all of the money and all of the houses and the Pokemon cards and the Super Bowl rings and the promotions and the partnerships and the degrees and all of the things that we will seek to acquire are all but just vapor. A puff of air coming out of our mouth on a cool, crisp winter morning and gone. Which now gets us further into the middle here. Greed is not just sad, but greed is bad. That is, it's not only sad, but greed, the pursuit of wealth, can actually be harmful. We'll see the preacher say that it's not just vain vapor, but that over and over again, wealth can be a grievous evil. Look at verse 13, back in chapter 5. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? You've heard it a hundred times, and it's perhaps become trite at this point, but it's so true that you can't pull a U-Haul to heaven. You can't, no matter how much stuff we tirelessly pursue to accumulate and to accumulate and accumulate, you can't take it with you. You came into this world completely naked. This is the way that you came into the world with nothing. And while you may be buried in your fanciest dress or your snappiest suit, by then it might even smell like mothballs, even that, your dress and your suit will decompose right alongside your skin. I saw a Bloomberg article last month about how funerals of the very rich are becoming more and more like these competitive opportunities to flaunt the wealth that they had acquired in their lives. $60,000 gold-plated coffins, Rolls-Royce hearses, all-expense-paid destination weddings to exotic locales. Like one last chance to show the world the kind of wealth that they had acquired for themselves. And here's why this is bad. If you're a Christian... You can't take your stuff with you, but nor would you want to. In the new heavens and new earth are dumpy old flat screens, are really nice houses, perhaps even the newest and fanciest iPhone XS, which I just saw, like I, I read about the iPhone XS, XS all 
week, and then I said it out loud the other day, and it's just funny, the iPhone XS, but anyway, it seems excessive. Anyway, well, all of these things, all of these fancy, nice things will just seem like trivial, forgetful things. They, they were just vapor here and gone when we finally get what we were created for, when we finally and fully get God. Increasing increasing and eternally increasing joy in his presence now finally and fully without any sin there to hinder my joy my worship of him and so the accumulation the celebration of wealth is bad it's even a grievous evil in our lives because stuff can become the end to which we are now pointing our entire lives it can become a distraction the place of our worship. Unless we're tempted to think, well, it's a good thing that I'm not rich. When I was cut to the core on Friday morning when I was reading a guy interact with a couple of parables on Twitter and one of his conclusions was this. Listen to this. It's easy to demonize Pharisees, but we need to understand how normal they are. When it says they loved money, there's no reason to think this refers to a particularly high level of greed which might be like unusual in the West today. Pharisees are orthodox, family-based, and hardworking. Perhaps this sounds very similar to many of us. And yet these are the kinds of people that Jesus, that Matthew, that Luke are denouncing because of their love of money. The money God, mammon, is a sneaky God. He comes into our lives making sweet and wonderful promises. And the scariest part for us Americans is the level to which we don't even realize how we have given him our heart, how we have given him our devotion, our love, and our worship. I don't think there's one of us here in the room tonight, no matter how much money you make, I don't think there's one of us who is not tempted toward giving the money God our entire lives. And money is a jealous and demanding God. He seeks to dominate us in our worship of him. More stuff, more raises, just a little bit more, just a little bit more, just a little bit more, and he is never satisfied. And money will not share his worship with another, which is exactly why when Jesus shows up on the scene, he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's a punch in the gut for us today. We wealthy Americans, no matter how much money you have, you are wealthy relatively speaking, to the kinds of people that Jesus was speaking to when he spoke those words. So the reason that we want to begin talking about money more and more and more here together, and not less and less, not because we're like undergoing some kind of a church-wide budget crisis or something that we've got to fix or some nonsense like that, not because we want to increase our budget or we want to like build our own building or something, not because if you give to the church, God is going to repay your faith with even more money, that's like the, the, the sultriest lie that mammon has ever sold, which comes from the, the deepest pit of hell. But because in recognizing how we might not even realize how much of our heart belongs to the money God, we want to begin with each other, together as a church, to begin peeling back our white-knuckled death grip on our possessions, on our 
houses, on our bigger houses, on our next raise, whatever the thing is. And then begin, now that our hands are perhaps loosened or even released, to be putting our hands on the holes in his hands. Latching ourselves on to the risen Christ. And just like God used the wealth of the glory of heaven in order to pour out the blessing of his grace and his forgiveness, in the same way our money and our possessions ought to more and more be something that we hold on to lightly in order that we might bless, that we might give with generosity, not hoarding of more and more. Not just in mandatory, like proportional tithing or something like that, but in a giving him of our whole heart. Not to a church budget, but as unto the Lord. Perhaps you've heard that the level of your giving is the thermometer of your heart. Like, we can, we can look at the, the amount of generosity in our life, and that will show us the level of our love for Christ. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Meaning, where your treasure is, your heart, your love, will actually follow. So giving and generosity to the church, towards missions, toward those who are lacking, all of this is not the thermometer of your heart, it's the thermostat. If you want to increase your love for Christ, your affection for God, begin giving more. Be giving, giving more and more in a regular and generous and disciplined way. Begin setting aside a portion of your monthly budget, not just toward the church, but towards the individual needs that you hear about in the life of the church. Towards the needs that you see around our city. And if you don't have a budget because you just spend frivolously on anything that your heart may want, well, make one so that you can actually have some room in, with your money, with the things that God has given you to be generous with. If you don't have a budget, just ask somebody in your GC to help you. Sit down together. Let's open our books with one another. We seek all kinds of accountability in all areas of our life. Discipline in all areas of our life. We say, brother, keep me accountable in the way that in impurity with my thoughts, with sexual sin. Help me be accountable in all of these ways. And yet, perhaps for many of us, most of us, we seek no accountability in our generosity. This is something that we should want more and more light in, more and more transparency in, not more and more darkness. Because while the money God of insatiable greed comes making infinite promises over finite resources, the infinitely generous God-man comes with the words of assurance that we heard earlier from Matthew 10 when Kyle read the words of Jesus, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest from the insatiable quest for more and more and more. Because he says in his death on the cross, it is finished. My life for yours. My death for yours. My life to yours. The infinite resources from the vaults of heaven now given to you with life in the spirit. Now you become an adopted heir of the high king of heaven with an inheritance to the eternal blessings of heaven, of living with God in joy forever. No more searching, no more starving for meaning. I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst again. Have you given your life to him? Not in a perfect, never wavering worship, but in an honest need for his grace, in a honest, self-reflective need for his forgiveness, for his love to transform you. And I don't mean like you have to have every answer checked, every box checked of this, 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 this must be checked for me to give my life to Christ. That, may, that might never happen. Perhaps you don't quite yet know what it means to follow Jesus. But perhaps tonight is the night. Where you say, I have lived my life in selfishness. I have lived my life in just the insatiable quest for more. For more for me. Self-promotion. And that life, that search for more, actually hasn't kept the promises that it's made. You might need to speak to Jesus, perhaps for the first time, and say, forgive me and help me. If this is something that you need to do, if the time of dancing around who Jesus is, perhaps that needs to be done, I would, I would just love to talk to you after this service. Many, many people around you would love to talk to you like during the Lord's Supper, after the Lord's Supper, at the park, after this. We would love to talk to you about what turning your life to Christ would mean. But make no mistake, he demands our worship. Money is demanding our worship. And it, only one of them can have it. More and more over the course of our life, we, we hope as a community to see all of our worship now given to him. But perhaps for the first time, you need to be, make that first move. All right, the other reason that greed is bad is the first six verses in chapter 6. There's an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a, it is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his life are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place, meaning death. To those who have no regard for the God over the sun, the giver of all good gifts, but only have regard for the gifts, only have regard for more success, for more wealth, for more possessions. God actually does not give the power for these kinds of people to enjoy the gifts. Tom Brady, I wish I knew, man. I wish I knew. They have made wealth the antidote of their lives and have found out that it's actually the poison. This person receives the gift of the can of peaches, but he has no way to open them and to enjoy them. No way to experience and to enjoy what's inside. The end toward which the can of peaches was actually made and given. So their only options are to either use this gift for another use, to use this can of peaches like a doorstop, 
using the bigger house or the growing investment portfolio as the end to which will make me happy, or to just take the can of peaches and perhaps like lick the label, like lick the, the picture of the peaches and just pretend. I know money and more stuff won't make me happy, but doggone it, I'm going to try anyway. What's the payoff? This has seemed like a pretty pessimistic section here. I've already shown my cards a bit, but is the conclusion then that because money can't satisfy, there is no meaning in it, all of the stuff that we acquire is here and gone, we're going to leave this place naked and we can't take anything with us, that because greed is sad and bad, that now we should just go liquidate everything that we have and we should give everything to the church or towards missions or to the homeless, that there isn't any meaning, there isn't any contentment, and that this world stinks. Quite the contrary. Greed is sad and greed is bad, but contentment can be had. Remember, it's easy to think that the tone of Ecclesiastes is pessimistic, but it isn't. It's not that this world stinks, it's that this world is vapor. The preacher is the wise old man on the porch watching the parade of silliness march by. He's seen people put their hope and faith in entertainment. That's stupid. You saw people putting their hope and faith in beauty. <laughs> That's stupid. Just wait till, wait till they look like, or wait till they look at themselves in the mirror in 50 years. Or perhaps they're trying to convince the world and themselves that they're actually not getting gray and wrinkly, like with surgeries or with hair coloring to convince them, themselves and the world that they're not going to die. That's stupid. Vapor. Time waits for no one. He, saw, he has seen people put their hope and faith in government. Don't do that. We've seen what that does to people. He's seen people put their hope and faith in material stuff, but the Solomon character has sent more stuff to the dump than we could ever dream of accumulating in our lifetime. But does the old wise preacher sit in his rocking chair and say, well, this has always been and it, has, and it always will be meaningless? No. Verse 18, chapter 5. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. We're going to spend nearly our entire time together on this theme next week. And the preacher has already told us this before, but he here tells us that everything that we have is a gift from God. So if God has given us these gifts, we ought to enjoy them. But the key to living a meaningful life is to find more joy in the giver than in the gifts. It's so good to enjoy the things that we have today, knowing that in a few years, much less for eternity, we will not remember the things that we had or even the days of our lives because God keeps us occupied with joy. I'm reminded here of Paul as he's writing from prison in Philippians chapter 4, where he says, not that I am, he's, he's in a jail cell as he says this. And he says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
And here's the secret, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Notice Paul doesn't say that one of these things is necessarily better or worse, that being brought low is better than abounding, or that plenty is worse than hunger or abundance is worse than need. Paul just says that if contentment is in Christ and in him alone, then what we have around us doesn't actually matter all that much at all. Right? Like, he's, he's not saying that I can go throw a football over the mountains through Christ who strengthens me, but I can be content in whatever situation God puts me in through Christ who strengthens me. Like, think about it. If you're a Christian, you are a former enemy of God. You wanted nothing to do with him. You hated him. Perhaps you wouldn't have explicitly said those words, but your life indicated it. You hated that there was someone bigger than you who would dare to put restrictions on your life. I'll do what I want. Thank you very much. Dead in your trespasses and sins. Happy and content in your death march to hell, away from God. All the way moving from just one station of discontentment to the next. Perhaps even recognizing God in his goodness, but like every good Westerner, thinking that you just perhaps one day earn your way into his favor. If there's something good out there, we want to deserve it, both in our paycheck and in God's favor. But somewhere along the way, Christian, God intervened. He interrupted into your life, whether that was by the words of a friend, by you're just reading the Bible, by you coming to a church service, you understood your defiance. You understood your discontentment. You looked at your life of ongoing sin. You rightly recognized that you could never earn God's favor. And you began to agree with God about your sin. You began to see the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, not just as some historical reality, but as the most incredible and joy-giving thing imaginable. Your greatest need met and fulfilled. Your guilt pardoned. Your shame covered. Jesus' righteousness, yours. Your death, your judgment, his. Once an enemy, now a friend. Once an orphan, now adopted by God. The eternal creator God of the universe. Now calling you a former enemy, now son or daughter. So now, if we don't have the nicest house or our really frustrating car just keeps breaking down who cares god has given us our greatest need if we aren't the most popular if we don't get into the best school if we don't get the job that we wanted or the promotion that we wanted or we don't have enough money to keep up with the joneses at the rate that we would like to keep up with them who cares the joneses aren't even content to begin with why would you want to be them? If we don't have enough to eat, if we're imprisoned, well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If I have terminal cancer or I'm under threat of execution, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Who cares? And we're not told a lot about what eternity will be like, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if 
God has given us these gifts in this life to enjoy him with if he will give us the same gifts into eternity to now fully enjoy him with. Good food, pets, like sports and competition, music. I think it's reasonable that we'll enjoy all of these for eternity. The gifts that God has given to us to enjoy him with finally now and fully removed from the distraction that we are constantly tempted with to worship them rather than him. We certainly won't just stand around and stare at a bright light for a trillion years. Eternity will be the most increasingly joyful place imaginable. Because why? Because we will dwell with God. The source of the greatest amount of joy imaginable. And it begins now, Christian. It begins now. I'm so glad to be a part of a community with you all who will be honest with one another about our sin, who will be honest with one another about our money, who will be honest with one another about our temptation toward worshiping the gifts rather than the giver. And as God has created us with eternity in our hearts, that even Tom Brady knows that there must be something more, there must be something greater for him beyond the vapor under the sun, that God has created us to dwell with him and to adventure with him forever. It's true. It's true that you only live once. YOLO, everybody. You only live once. But here's the flip side of this. You only live for eternity. That's great news. Christian, the, the overlap of eternity begins now. Like, so enjoy the things that God has given you. Like, really, really, really enjoy what you're going to eat at the park tonight. Whether it's a taco or like a pizza pizza or something. Like, this is a gift from the Lord that he has given you to enjoy him with. Like the sausage and the tomatoes and the artichoke hearts. These are just like an inch deep little taste of the millions mile depths that God has created us to enjoy in him forever. So let's just go swimming together, Christ Church, and enjoying the things that God has given us, even in artichoke hearts. I, I have an unusual enjoyment of artichoke hearts, but, that, but I think I can say I enjoy them because God is so good to give us artichoke hearts. But in all of these things, in the gifts that he has given to us, especially to us as this community, who has given ourselves to Christ and has given ourselves to each other, that more and more we might see these gifts as gifts. And because they were gifts in the first place, we might hold them very loosely and be willing to even give them away. Give away the artichoke hearts, give away our automobiles perhaps. That's a big thing. But if these are gifts from the Lord, we can enjoy them, but hold them loosely because we enjoy even more the giver of these gifts. Even so, come Lord Jesus. This ought to be uh, uh, just a constant drumbeat of this book as we read it, as we swim in it together. Come Lord Jesus and fully satisfy us forever. Let's pray to that end. Our Father, we are thankful for the gifts that you have given us. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Every good thing that we have in our lives 
even if we would not call ourselves a Christian, every good gift that we have is exactly that, a gift from you. So we are thankful. We are thankful for the countless breaths that we have breathed subconsciously today, that you have given us life, that you have given us enjoyment in this life. Father, we pray for those amongst us here this evening who are perhaps experiencing a great lack, that they perhaps do go go to bed hungry, that they perhaps are the victims of exploitation. Father, we pray for the rich and the poor, those who have plenty and those who have very little, that you would be the fulfillment of our desires, that you might give us what we need, that we might enjoy you. Give us enough so that we are not tempted towards sin. Father, we pray that you would perhaps keep us from too much, that we are tempted to worship it. Father, help us as your church here to be more and more transparent about the worship that we have given towards money. Help us as this community to loosen our grip on our things. Help us to be generous. Help us to love our neighbor as ourself, even with our money. Even so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come. Come tonight. Come and make all things new. Right every wrong and correct every injustice. Lord Jesus, we pray, come soon. In your name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.